Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Gardening on this last weekend of winter in the week we're about to welcome spring and welcoming to the studio, John Lamb. Good morning. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, listeners. And a very special welcome to sunshine. Yay. Once the clouds fall back, and I hope they do, we're going to see blue skies. Do you believe uh, only in the 26 days we've had up till yesterday, it's to 27th today, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. Only one day in the month so far that's been clear blue skies. The rest of the days, the best west of the month, it's been cloudy. Gee, mm. there have been pockets of it, but yes, I know oh, what you're saying. A, they might have a little bit of a sun in the morning and then the clouds move in. That's right, yes. Uh, welcome, sunshine, <laughs> at least this afternoon maybe, and hopefully tomorrow with 21 degrees. I Make know. the most of it. Absolutely. Get out into the garden. If you've got any organic gardening questions, the person to ask is... Tim Marshall. Tim Marshall is a wonderful authority on organic gardening. He happens to be the president of the National Association for Sustainable Agriculture, but he's written many books on organic gardening. He's a wonderful communicator and a regular uh, guest on ABC Talkback Gardening, and he'll be talking very much about what's happening in the soil. And Tim has the philosophy that the soil is teeming with life. And if we feed the life in the soil, then the little life in the soil will feed our plants. It's a wonderful cycle, and more about that shortly. Later in the program, we'll talk to uh, uh, Brett Draper, who's going to just give us more reasons why we should visit the show next week. Wonderful. And I have two August ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away as well. But, of course, we want your questions. So call in now if you've got an organic gardening question for Tim Marshall on 1300 222 We'll pick up general talkback gardening a little bit later in the program. And if you have a comment to make, we love to receive them on the text line. That number is 0467 922 When it comes to growing your warm season vegetables, you put the seedlings in and then normally you'd ply them with fertiliser. There could be a better way. And rather than fertilising after they're grown, we get the fertiliser or the nutrition into the soil before we actually plant. And it's the way we're going to introduce our guest this morning, Tim Marshall. Welcome, Tim. Uh, hello, uh, John. So, there it is. We uh, have got uh, the soil and it is according to you and your philosophy and those that know what's going on in the soil, the, the soil is teeming with life. Uh, so, just briefly, what's this all about, this life in the soil? Well, basically, inside a good, healthy soil, you have the whole ecosystem of, uh, of, of life as complex as any other um, uh, ecosystem that we know. And really, that's what sustains plant growth in nature. And if we uh, husband it correctly, if we looked after it correctly, it's uh, not only sufficient, but it's the best way to really feed our garden plants as well. Can you describe the life? Well, um, in, in a really good uh, soil, you have a very, very large ecosystem. It's just as complex as any other 
uh, web of life that we know from you know, the tropical rainforest or, or anything else. Um, so, you know, the things that we know well and understand best are the bacteria and then there's uh, fungi, but then there's a whole lot of other things that feed on them and uh, work with them. So, you know, we, we, we think of things like amoebas and things like that in, in the context of dangerous things when they get into our gut, but they're the norm in, in the soil and we actually want uh, as, big, as great a complexity as we, as we actually can because, you know, they're all feeding off each other and uh, in, in the process they're making nutrients available for plants and they're also producing all sorts of, uh, of other chemicals and, uh, and exudates that they put into the soil that serve as sort of biostimulants for plants that keep them healthy, that uh, encourage roots to grow and that otherwise care for the health of the plant. So the soil is... So one, way of understa- one way of understanding that is a lot of, for instance, some of, a lot of the, uh, the antibiotics and things that we use to protect ourselves, like penicillin, they're, they're soil organisms. So in the soil, they're producing exactly the same thing, taken up by plants, and the plants are using them to protect themselves from uh, plant headaches just the way we use them. <laughs> so there are hordes of little microbes in the soil of different shapes and sizes all interacting with, you, with each other, but they need to be fed. How are we going to feed them? Well, uh, the, uh, the primary thing that we want to do is um, provide plenty of organic matter because you know, th- th- that's the fundamental raw food that they're going to start, uh, that's going to start these uh, things doing. Now, after that, we do various other things to care for them. So, again, with the human analogy, you know, primarily we need to intake food, but then we need secondary things like, you know, uh, we need shelter, for instance. So, in the, in the soil context, shelter means protection from the sun, it means protection from extremes of weather, which we do with mulches, and ideally minimising digging. And the organic matter, that's presumably compost. What else? Well, um, I mean, anything that was once alive becomes organic matter. The advantage of compost, uh, and and you know that I'm a big fan of compost, is that with compost, you've done, I guess effectively you could think of it as some pre-digestion of that organic matter. So you started to create it. Some of it will be more readily available and more quickly available to plants, but also you've converted that organic matter to a more stable form. So you know, if you just put some, some you know, animal manures or plant residues on the surface, uh, you know, it can potentially disappear fairly quickly, whereas a compost is likely to be there uh, for many years to come. Gardeners are used to putting fertiliser on the soil um, and having it leach into the root system with organic matter. Talk a little bit about the placement of that organic matter. Well, um, again, with your fertilisers, what you're trying to do is directly feed the plant. Uh, The best way to understand that this the the organic approach is that you're not directly feeding the plant. What you're doing is feeding that soil ecosystem, and then that soil ecosystem feeds the plant. So the first thing to remember is it might take a little bit of time. So prepare for your summer garden now by adding some of that organic material to your soil, compost if possible, or or other materials. And then with respect to placement, 
I guess, um, for me, I would say that depends largely on the state of your soil already. Because if you have a really good soil that's friable, that's open, that's been cared for in the past, you really only need to put that material on the soil surface in the form of a mulch or gently, gently tick it, uh, tickle it into the, the soil surface. If you're dealing with a new soil that hasn't been developed for, for, for gardening before or that's been mistreated in any way, then there might be some reason then to dig it in to uh, what will become the root zone of your summer plants. Our guest this morning is Tim Marshall, organic gardener, and he's convincing you, I'm sure, to be able to feed the hordes of little (laughs) microbes that are in the soil. And uh, we'll continue that discussion shortly, but... uh, I suspect there could be some questions coming Yes, to if you'd like to speak to Tim, need to get in now because we've only got him for a limited time. The phone number is 1300 Sandra from Hackham is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, all. Uh, a quick, um, two questions quickly. I'm, I'm growing some cauliflower and one plant is not compact. The head didn't go compact. It was open and airy. And I'm just wondering what that might be and... Also, what does Tim do after when you pull up all your brassicas, your cauliflowers and broccolis, what does he how does he prepare the soil for the next um crops, please? Uh okay, so the the first question, the open head. Um, you know, it, there are many things that can contribute to that, but the first thing you have to suspect with that sort of thing is a trace element problem and that's often a lack of boron and uh, molybdenum. And um, both of those are easily applied. They're available readily from your garden centre. And the boron in particular has to be careful not to overdo. We're talking about really a teaspoon in a watering can, uh, you know, applied, uh, say, three times uh, a week or ten days apart, and you've absolutely got enough boron there for a year or two. Um, and, you know, and that, that, uh, that uh, watering can, normal nine-litre watering can, over about four or five square metres. So you need tiny amounts, but even those tiny amounts can have the effect that you talked about. And as for preparing uh, after uh, brassica, well, the first first thing, if you have enough material uh, to create a compost heap, that's always my preferred method. And if you don't have a lot of material, that's when you go to a compost bin. Um, But with brassicas, uh, you really should be using rotations so you need to think of something that's from a completely different family. So that means not things like rocket, not uh, not another member of the cabbage, uh, cabbage family. Ideally, go to a legume, so you know peas and beans and those sorts of things. But certainly something that's not from the same family. Okay, thank you very much for that call, Sandra. Uh, the phone number again one three hundred triple two eight nine one. If you have a question for Tim Marshall, he is an organic gardening expert. So particularly those sorts of questions are really what we're after at the moment. Let's take a look at that organic matter. It needs to be placed into the soil, and the question is, uh, how long before you can actually start planting? If you dig a lot of organic matter into the soil, perhaps could you explain if you planted straight away what would happen, Tim, and uh, how long you might wait? And considering we've got, say, uh, four to six weeks before people get stuck into sowing their warm season vegetables, do we have enough time? Uh, well, if, if you're planning to plant in six weeks, don't hesitate to add your organic, organic material now. 
that the, uh, if you're putting raw organic material into the soil compared to compost, for instance, if you were digging in the residues of those brassica plants, what happens is the first stage of the process, when the cells begin to rot and open up, they can actually release into the soil some things that are a little bit toxic for roots. So you don't want that material in very close association with roots. Six weeks is ample time if you keep the soil moist and really, you know, at this, at this time of year, it's, the soil is beginning to warm up to the point where you will get enough breakdown in six weeks to be able to plant into uh, uh, any, any waste that you're putting into the soil right now. If you're using compost, you can make that uh, time association between digging it in and planting um, a lot smaller. And if you have very, very, very good compost, then you can actually put the compost at the time of planting. But if you're not sure you've got the best compost, still give that two to three weeks before you plant. So the concept is to put the organic matter into the soil that feeds the teeming hordes that are in the soil and they in turn uh, uh, produce the nutrients that are needed to grow your plant. But we come back to that organic matter. Presumably it varies considerably in quality, Tim. So um, do you need to add uh, traditional fertilisers or other nutrients to the organic matter that you're placing in the soil to grow good quality uh, vegetables? Um, well, if we add a lot of organic matter over time, it's probably enough. But, you know, sometimes the starting soil that we begin with is already has its deficiencies and then it can take some time. So then we tend to do two, two types of things. One is to still add fertilisers um, in a similar but sometimes not identical form to what a non-organic gardener will, will use. But, you know, most of the trace elements, for instance, that I mentioned before, molybdenum and, and, uh, and boron, those sorts of things, if you go to a regular garden centre and buy the little paper packets of those materials, generally that you, you know that's quite fine in an, in an organic garden. We we avoid the strongly acidulated ones like superphosphate, okay? Because now they can actually do a little bit of harm. They can do some good, but they can also do some harm. So uh, you know if if you if you haven't developed your soil, if you haven't been caring for it. Uh, then you may need to add some fertilisers and a good general organic garden fertiliser is a good starting point. If you're doing a lot of growing or commercial growing or relying on your garden, then you might like to do, do a soil test so you know what's missing and what you need to add. So you put your organic matter garden into the soil now and in six weeks' time you're putting in your seedlings, they get off to a good start. How long... Uh, will the nutrients remain in the soil and still be beneficial? Will you still have to, uh, or will you have to uh, top it up with more organic matter or uh, more fertilizer later in the season? Well, ideally, you continually feed your soils, and uh, but because you, you only ever want to dig at the beginning of the cycle, uh, then from that point on, you try and use any additional materials as mulch. And uh, and therefore, uh, mulches, you're looking for one of two things. You're either looking for things that become, you know, fairly quickly and readily available in the soil, like the compost, which is easily drawn down into the soil by the action of rain, by worms and other things that were put down in the soil, or you're looking for something that's a long-term mulch 
that's going to serve more as soil protection rather than food. And ideally, of course, you use both things and you would put your compost on the ground first as a feeding layer for the soil and then you would put your wood chips or something else like that on the soil surface uh, on top of that mulch to protect the, the compost itself from the action of sun and rain. So you have to sort out what you're trying to do. Are you trying to protect the soil or are you trying to feed plants or are you trying to do both things? Tim Marshall is our special guest, organic expert. We've got a few questions for you, Tim, so we will come to those in just a moment. If you'd like to grab some some of Tim's expertise, call in now on 1300 222 891. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. South Australia and Broken Hill. Our special guest this morning is Tim Marshall, Organic Gardening Authority. Tim, we've got a few questions for you. Let's start with Kate, uh, north of Port Augusta. Kate, it certainly is that time of year for weeds at the moment. What's your problem? Good morning. Uh, My problem is that I have an asparagus bed that has onion weed in it and I'd really like to get on top of that onion weed. There's a difficult mm. one for you, Tim. That's not <laughs> not an easy solution. You're starting off with one of the most difficult weeds to control with whether you have organic or non-organic approach. That's going to be one of the harder things. So uh, what, what can you do to, to, to fix it? Firstly, um, you, you can do uh, some digging hands and knees. You have to be very careful. You have to use uh, a prong-type implement that you can get right underneath the, the, the little the tube uh, which is down in the ground. Um, it may depend effectively, uh, effectiveness may depend on how long it's been there because they do tend to get deeper over time. Um, the other thing with that sort of uh, hand digging is you must do it when the soil's in good condition. Sometimes you can get your little you know, two-pronged uh, weed digger down deep underneath it, prise it up, and it will just come away. If it's going to always break, then you may as well not even try. Wait till the soil... Usually it's a question of moisture. You know, Perfect is, say, four days after a really good rain or really good irrigation. Tim? Um, and it, yes? Yeah, I've got to suggest that there is now an organic weedicide slasher. Okay, so it burns off the top, but presumably... Uh, if you get your timing right and wait till the onion weeds are just starting to flower um, and, and use your slasher then, would and, and maybe you'd have to repeat it fairly often, would that be effective on that kind of a weed? Uh, it, it certainly has some uh, effectiveness and it can knock it back and you can stop it from being vigorous and from increasing. To, to, to really kill onion weed effectively with any organic herbicide uh, is, is a big ask and you're certainly going to uh, require multiple applications. But, uh, um, uh, John, I'm going to say many of the conventional herbicides aren't going to work either. So, you know, it's a small target and um, it's difficult to kill by whatever means. But if it's just a matter of wanting to knock it back a bit and get it a little bit out of the way so your garden plants can get ahead and start growing and grow over the top and begin to shade out the onion weed, then yes, any of the uh, organic herbicides that are available um, are worth a go. Um, 
we're getting much better at um, learning how to use those herbicides. They are contact herbicides. Uh, They will kill the bulb, but you're talking about a massive rate of application and lots and lots of water to soak it down into the ground. Yes, I was suggesting that maybe they would sort of wipe it on so uh, uh, I don't yes. know that they could get enough chemical into the uh, into the area. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough one and it's an ongoing one and thank you very much for your comments on that one. Yes, and thanks for the call, Kate. Uh, Sue is in the Mid-North doing something else with weeds. Hi, Sue. Oh, yes, good morning. Um, last year's uh, stinging nettles I uh, put into a bathtub and covered with water and let it sit for few months and then I took the liquid off and stored it in 20 litre drums and I've still got some sitting in the shed that have been that's undiluted been sitting there since last year and I'm wondering whether that's still possible to use it or I'll just dump it and start again. No it's certainly valuable basically uh, what stinging nettle produces are very very large amount of chlorophyll and that chlorophyll is full of uh, trace elements in particular you've got some magnesium and some other useful things and that will not go away over time whatever was contained in that liquid in when you made it is still there um you know sometimes with those sorts of things they can get a bit stinky and ideally you you wait until they've gone past the stinky stage because as we said for digging raw material in the ground some of the first things that are produced when the cells begin to break apart and rot away are a couple of chemicals that can damage roots but as long as long as you've ma- uh, matured that uh, that material it's uh, it's useful and uh, the nutrients don't change or go away so whatever was in there still is worth using there you go sue good work thanks very much for calling gail in salisbury heights what question would you like to ask of our special guest tim marshall Yes, good morning uh, good, and a good morning, Tim. I'm just wondering about growing produce vegetables in pots and containers, which I do, how I prepare the soil uh, organically. And you're saying don't dig so much. So obviously with pots you need to sort of dig, but I, I do put mulch in the pots and organic matter, also eggshells, crushed eggshells, which I believe are very good for the soil. But I'm just wondering how, or are they not? <laughs> I'm just wondering how you would prepare the soil um, organically to encourage the microbes? Um, okay, well, the story is similar in that you, you want a good percentage of compost. I, I grow quite a bit in pots. I grow, for instance, most of my herbs in pots, and I would use about 20% compost. Usually, it's not ideal to grow in soil in a pot. You use a potting mix. Now, the organic philosophy actually says you do put some soil in there. The conventional advice says just use the potting mix. So again, in in my potting mixes, I start with the cheapest, simplest, most basic potting mix that I can buy, and then I'll put about 20% uh, compost. I'll put about 20% of soil, if it's good garden soil, and then I'll add other materials like core, which is the... uh, uh, the, the, the fibre from the outside of uh, coconut um, and then if you need to loosen that soil a bit because you know pots can because you don't you're usually not digging soil you, uh, but they can become a little, little bit uh, compacted so you put in some granular material sometimes that's uh, 
that, that uh, that's just um, a pine um, uh, wood, or sometimes it's um, you know uh, coarse sand or something like that. Whatever you can get. Tim, before so, we go any um, further, yeah. there would be people listening and say, "Oh, I need that. I need that recipe." Can you just repeat with just that the amount of soil um, or potting mix soil? Uh, coconut coir and, and anything else. Could you just repeat that for people that are writing it down? Yes, I can. But I stress that, uh, that you do need to observe and adjust according to your particular situation, the size of the pot, what you're growing, the quality of the materials you're using. But my basic recipe is fundamentally I start with the cheapest, most basic pine bark based soil uh, potting soil that i can get now the reason for that is i don't want the chemicals that are put in the more expensive ones i, I want to be in charge of that myself so then i would add about 20 percent of compost in my case it's my own compost if you're buying it the best compost that you can buy okay then uh, i would put far uh 10 to 20% of garden soil, the best garden soil that you can possibly get from your own garden. You can buy garden soil, but it's usually not ideal, okay? Um, And then after that, you just have to make an assessment of is this going to be hard setting? Is it going to be loose? Do I need to loosen it up? It will depend a bit on what you're growing, but the core, which is the, the fibre from the coconut, usually you buy it in bricks, you put the brick in a bucket, you fill the bucket up with water and over an hour or so it all swells and, 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 uh, 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 and becomes a fibrous material. It's great in the pot for holding moisture and I would say 5% of core and perhaps if you need to open the soil up, if you can get sharp sand, it's hard to buy now also in garden centres because we used to mine it from river riverbeds and we, we don't do that anymore. But if you can find it, about 5% of that just to loosen the soil up. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, what a and great recipe. If it's okay with you, Tim, I might add, incre- uh, include uh, that in, in next yes. week's newsletter, yes. Good Gardening newsletter. So sign up for that and if you my, haven't got And my got book, it. The New Organic Gardener, has a few recipes to adjust that as well. Brilliant. Yeah, yes. Okay, Gail, I hope you get an answer there. We'll take one more call for Tim Marshall because we are running out of time. Pip is in Stirling. Pip, uh, what's your question for Tim? My question is, I find it much easier to use my worm farm because I don't have enough uh, garden to make compost. How can I add the worm castings to my vegetable bed? Can I just plonk them straight on and dig them in, or should I dilute them, or what should I do? You can certainly add them direct to, direct to the soil. Now, in this case, they're pretty valuable, so they're definitely something that I want to protect. So I can do that in two ways. One is by just with a simple trowel or a hoe or something like that, make uh, shallow trenches um, around uh, the root zone of your plant and put it under the soil surface or, or wow. ideally uh, at or near the soil surface, just chickled in a little bit with you know, one of those three-prong hoes or something, but just into the surface and then protect them with mulch. You're putting on a really valuable, very, very useful ingredient so you do want to protect it against the summer sun. Thank you for that, Pip. Um, Tim Marshall, I'll hand you back to John Lamb. Tim, before I let you go, you've written many books on gardening. What would be probably the uh, the most recent book that you have written that probably is still available in garden shops and certainly in libraries? 
Well, unfortunately, all of my books are hard to find in uh, in bookshops now, and uh, uh, humbly, I'll say that, that they're, they're generally valued by people who buy them, so they're very rare in second-hand bookshops as well. But they are in libraries, and the one that I recommend, first of all, is called The New Organic Gardener, and it, it, it is um, you know a very good introduction to organic gardening for someone who wants a good start. And I would say here, here to that, it's a very good and valuable uh, resource book that I find very useful. Tim Marshall, thank you for your contributions. I was hoping to have time to talk to you about fertilising and feeding fruit trees, but that's a topic for another day. You're on notice, Tim Marshall, for another <laughs> okay. session. Thank you for your help this morning. Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Tim Marshall, Organic Gardening Authority, very generous with his time here on Talkback Gardening. And thank you to Lynette from Torrensville who rang through to say that she thinks organic gardening should be a community activity. She has a large garden and would love people to come and share it with her, and she is 71. So thank you very much for that. We are going to go back to general Talkback Gardening in just a moment. So call through now on 1300. Triple two eight nine one. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. We are heading back into Talkback Gardening with John Lamb. So call now. Lots of lines free on 1300 Don't forget, I have a couple of uh, the final August. ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away a little later as well and for your comments on the text line 0467922891 Marino is where Lorraine is now you have a cycad question Lorraine yeah that's right um, I have two cycad revoluters in ceramic pots that are about 20 years old they're under a balcony with filtered light in the summer, they have an irrigation from a dripper system. In the winter, they're hand-watered. One is upright and green. <clears throat> the other one looks like it's collapsed. It's flat, drooping. Um, their fronds are yellowing at the ends, and it's got some scaly brown material on about three of the fronds out of the 21. I'm concerned whether that might spread to the second one and if there's anything I can do, and if not, how to get it out and reuse the pot. Interesting uh, description there, Lorraine. Very good, because I think it tells a story that uh, one is very happy and the other is not. Both should be very happy because cycads are very easy to grow in containers. What I would suggest, how big are those containers? Can you tip it on its side? Yeah, I can. Um, It's pretty firm. It's probably about... Uh, 40 centimetres high and about 40 centimetres wide. Yes, right. They're in the original ones and, of course, they've got big over the 20 years. borrow somebody that's got plenty of muscles and tip it over its side (laughs) and have a look at the drainage hole. Uh, I get very concerned about some of the ceramic pots and also the lightweight uh, fibreglass pots. When you look and if you tip it over, you'll find there's only one hole and it's probably a small hole in the centre of the container. And if that gets blocked... You're in trouble. And you happen to be in trouble, Lorraine, because I suspect (laughs) the hole is blocked and what's happening Mm -hmm. is the rain is building up and the bottom part of the soil in the container will be soggy wet. 
and uh-huh. you'll have root rots on your roots uh, on on the root system, the lower root system, and that's reflected in the yellowing of the tips of your plant. So uh-huh. somehow you need to be able to <laughs> either uh, uh, and how I mean it, it probably means uh, maybe in a couple of weeks' time um, when we're getting constantly warm a warmer weather. You need to take it out of its container, um, roll it around a few times, uh, and get it out of its container. Check to see the the hole is not blocked, and if it is, unblock it. And probably the best thing to do with those kind of pots is to put a layer of gravel, probably a two or three centimetre layer of gravel over the base and even put a little bit of shade cloth or something like that on top of the gravel so the soil doesn't get down and gunk up the gravel as well as the drainage hole. It's a major problem and many people have got uh, poorly looking plants and it's probably because of the drainage problem or the lack of drainage uh, because of the manufacturers of those containers. When you're buying a new container, have a look at the size of the hole. (laughs) If there's only one hole in the middle, you need to uh, uh, get somebody, or if you're a good handy person, you can actually drill more holes. And and, uh, it's not an easy job, but it needs to be done. This was already in the pot when I got it. What I'm worried about is the scaly sort of material. Yeah, okay. I'm wondering if that's going to be contagious onto the second one. Uh, yeah, well, it depends. If, if the other one is healthy, it'll probably yeah. uh, be healthy enough to withstore. But often when you get a big build-up, you've got scale. Scale is yes. a sap-sucking yeah, insect. Like uh, and yeah. what I'd be suggesting is you uh, spray this weekend, tomorrow when it's nice and uh, sunny, spray it with an oil, eco-oil, pest oil, but both of them, and maybe repeat that operation in about two weeks' time. And Uh keep an eye on your good-looking cycad, and if you see any scale appear there, you'll need to spray. No point in spraying unless you can see the scale, but uh, they'll build up very, very quickly once they're there. Do you have any um, advice on how to handle the severe prickliness of the thing if I'm turning it over on its side and so on? It's... I think if you get uh, an old sheet or something like that or uh, uh, material and, and just wrap it around the uh, the foliage, you might sort of get a bit of a string so that it stays there. And then uh, it, when you tip it over and just roll it round two or three times and that loosens up the soil, the root ball, particularly if it uh, tends to be a little bit root-bound. And if it is root-bound at the top, uh, you're going to have to use a very, very sharp trowel, a, a strong trowel, and, and dig down the sides and get it out that way. But they're beautiful plants and well worth saving, so go to it. On the text line, Chris is saying, or it could be non-wetting problems and the water is not getting into the root ball, which is a completely different kettle yeah, of fish Good observation, well. yes, yes. Uh, the fact that the leaves were going yellow at the end, I think, says uh, something is happening to the root system. If it was a lack of moisture, probably rather than yellow, there'd be sort of brown tips but uh, that's purely an observation. Thank you very much. Good luck with that. Uh, Next time we speak to you, we'll be live at the Royal Adelaide Show, first time in a couple of years due to the pandemic, of course. And a man who always works so hard, probably too hard behind the scenes, is Brett Draper, Deputy Chair of the Horticulture Committee at the Royal Agricultural and Horticultural Society of South Australia, very well known to this Talkback Gardening Program. Brett, uh, how is it all coming together? 
Well, good morning, Deb and John. It's coming together actually quite well at this stage. We've uh, been in the Goida Pavilion now for almost two weeks. Um, so a lot of the infrastructure um, is in place and uh, we will be finishing that early this week, ready for the plants to arrive at the end of the week. You've mentioned last week that Sophie's putting on a great big two-storey display of how you can have a garden in a two-storey unit. Uh, you talked about the scarecrows and you talked about some of the uh, different kind of uh, uh, displays that will be there. I'm worried, Brett. It's been cold and showery. And a couple of years ago, you almost had problems because your, your uh, daffodils and the bulbs weren't in flower in time for the show. Could it be you won't have enough colour uh, to make a kaleidoscope of colour as we walk into the Goida Pavilion? Well, John, I can assure you that this year won't that won't be the case. Uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time yesterday morning visiting um, some wholesale nurseries which are growing the stock for us, and the stock is looking absolutely fantastic in fact the best that i've ever seen it the it's either it either is budding up or coming into flower so in a week's time it will be absolutely superb and it will last for the full nine days of the show wonderful people get excited when they see colorful flowers uh, so let's take a look at uh, some of the uh, displays uh, i believe this time and probably for the first time that I'm aware of the Botanic Gardens will have a display. Well yes look the Botanic Gardens used to have a display many many years ago well before my time with the show um, but this year they're having a display and it will feature um, uh, uh, the Amorphophallus titanium or titum arum lilies or you might even know them as corpse flowers <laughs> the, the one that smells <laughs> you're not going to bring in a smelly plant i hope <laughs> no no that won't be in flower john and, and the idea of the, the idea of the display is that is it's a it's really about education and, sh and just um showing people um because these plants are actually critically endangered in their natural environment they come from sumatra in indonesia um, and they're endangered in, in their natural environment. And the Botanic Gardens are part of an international conservation program in helping to save this species. So it's more about showing people what they look like, how they are able to propagate them and how they're actually able to help save this really important species um, from extinction in the wild. So that should be well worth looking at. Um, other displays that we might be interested in? Well, John, our feature plant this year is cacti and succulents. So we've got quite a uh, substantial display going in uh, from the Cacti and Succulent Society, which will feature a whole range um, of wonderful cacti and succulent and euphorbias and all those really, really amazing looking plants. And some of them, you know, look 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 pretty mean, pretty fierce with their spikes. But uh, um, I can assure you that you won't, those ones you won't be able to access, but it will be quite a spectacular display. Tell us a little bit about the floriculture and uh, the flower shows oh, and, and the, the competitions there. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, this obviously we have we have lots of um, uh, different competitions on on varying days. Like for instance, camellias. For instance, we have three different showings throughout the show. But of course, we have cut flowers. We have native. Uh, cuts and blooms. We obviously have daffodils, which is one of my favourites, and I enter in, in the daffodils. I love daffodils myself, so I'm hoping I can get my entries in on time, um, <laughs> among other things. Um, and, of course, you know, the other the other things as well, I mean, we have um, uh, bonsai is always very well supported and three different showings of bonsai. So that actually rotates throughout the show. So when, if people come yeah. multiple times throughout the show, they can actually see three different types of, of bonsai and camellias and a whole range of things, really. 
There is so much to look forward to, Brett. I can't wait. And you do our stage at the ABC, so we're looking forward to catching up with you hopefully next weekend as well. Good luck with it all. Um, Don't work too hard, but we look forward to seeing you throughout the show. And thanks for joining us this morning. We can't wait, Deb. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Brett Draper from the uh, Horticulture Committee at the Royal Agricultural and Horticultural Society, i.e. the show that we love. Now, I've got a couple of ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away to you right now. If you come to see us at the Royal Adelaide show next week... You might get one just for turning up, but I'd love it if you turned up with a question for John live. So call in now if you've not won anything from our station in the last month, one 891 Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Congratulations to one of our winners is Lorraine from Gawler and I should let you know as well, not only do we have magazines to give away to you next weekend, but we've also got Costa Georgiadis and Sophie Thompson from the ABC Gardening Australia team. Sophie, of course, as you mentioned, John, having the main display there, as she does every year, so looking forward to talking to her about that. It will be fun with Costa there and if might be able to ask your question of Costa. Wow, there you go. That's an opportunity you don't get every day of the week, that's for sure. Now, Robin from Mount Barker is on the line. You've got a poinsettia. Is it uh, in a bit of trouble, Robin? Oh, oh, good morning, Deb. Well, it's not in trouble. That's that's the trouble. It's um, doing really well, but I just need to know. We've got to move in about 12 months. I don't want to put it outside. We're renting. And... It's, it's in a pot that's um, 26 centimetres diameter, it's 22 centimetres high, but the plant itself is flowering beautifully at the moment and the, the flower on the top is almost 28 centimetres across. That's wonderful. The, the plant's for, it is, but yeah, I gave it a bit of fertiliser and it's just gone mad, but it's about 45 centimetres high and I'm thinking, you know, does it, it probably needs to go in a bigger pot and, and if so, how much bigger and when do I do it? Interesting. Before I give you an answer, uh, presumably it's getting pretty strong light? Yes, it's right by um, a, a glass door and so it gets a, the morning light. It's basically, I don't know, north northwest it's no, bright North bright East. light yeah the reason i ask that is that many people they buy their little points at here at uh, christmas time because it's red then and, and then they try to sort of uh, repeat the performance and it, it doesn't perform very very well but you've obviously giving it the right conditions and good light inside is the way to go and of course they don't normally flower in uh, at christmas time they flower around about now uh, and and so uh, we come to your answer to your question let them let the plant keep on flowering, and you'll find that as we move into spring, the flowers will fade. And as they start to look a bit daggy, off with the heads, uh, chop it back, trim it back, and if you want to repot it, that's the time to do it and put it back into good quality potting mix. And as Tim was saying, uh, and as uh, Kevin Hendrick, uh, the soil expert a few weeks ago, was saying, you know, buy the the the, the fertilizer, buy the the potting mix that doesn't have the fertilizer in it, uh, the one with the black ticks on it, it's good quality, but you can add the kind of fertiliser that you want. But the important thing is uh, put it into good quality potting mix and a good fertiliser and away you go for another season. Oh, thank you, John. But how much bigger do I make the pot? This is 
That, that's what I need to know. So this one's 26 centimetres diameter and 22 centimetres high, but well, it will need to go into a big, bigger pot, I think, won't it? Because well, not necessarily. You can either take probably two centimetres from around the root ball and another two centimetres from underneath the root ball, and that way uh, you're giving it a bit of a bonsai, and you can put it back into the same container uh, if you wanted to. But if you wanted to increase the size of it, go up by about 20% of volume. So if it's, uh, say, 20 metres across, then you'd probably end up with something maybe uh, about 25, 26 centimetres across. Thanks, Robin. I hope uh, your repotting goes well. And congratulations to Vivian from Russell Island in Queensland, who listens in to you every Saturday morning, John, even when she's in Bali. You're joking. No, I'm not. So congratulations joining Lorraine from Gawler as our ABC Gardening Australia prize winner today. I, I know we've got a lot of listeners in Victoria, in, in Melbourne in particular, but uh, that's Queensland. interesting. Yes. There you go. Stephen is in Pandana on Kangaroo Island. Um, Stephen, you've got a soil question for John. Yes. Uh, is there any evidence that soil microbial activity raises soil temperature? No. No, <laughs> no, not that I'm aware of. Well, I mean, soil, you've got little microbes and, you know, they're gobbling up the organic matter. Okay. And, and what happens is one little microbe will come along and gobble up a bit of uh, organic matter and another little microbe will come along and gobble up the first one and, so, and the next one. But uh, you're not going to raise the soil temperature. So, uh, if it does, it would be absolutely minimal of no uh, consequence, whereas the temperature uh, overnight and... Uh, during the day, they're the two factors that influence soil temperature. And just for those that are wondering what soil temperatures are like at the moment, uh, they're fluctuating between 10 and 12 degrees, far too cold to stimulate plants into good action. Yes, okay. And Stephen, have you been doing some uh, experiments, have you? Yeah, I have. Um, my, my average soil temperature around, I'm growing sort of bananas and things, way out of... Uh, normal yes and it's it's varying between about 12 and 14 and under some bananas which i heavily composted before winter so it's all broken down i got it up to 15 yesterday and that's in shade and i drove a thermometer into the stem of a banana and it was reading about 15 into the center right okay that's considerably warmer than normal and I was thinking that with soil microbial activity you get respiration and you get heat being created. Now it wouldn't be much, it'd be but I was thinking you know, it might be an accumulated effect in the ground. Right. There's a difference between just putting a bit of organic matter in the soil and the microbes gobbling it up and composting. If you're making compost, you'll find that that will heat up very, very considerably. But it's the fact that it's all concentrated together and the microbial population really skyrockets. And when you're doing that, but I'm fascinated, the fact that you can get the soil up to 15 degrees. So I can only presume that the organic matter that you put in the soil is not fully composted and there's a bit of composting going on as you go. Fascinating. Uh, which uh, is interesting, but be very careful that they, the heat doesn't burn off the roots of your plants. But, uh, yeah, that's a 
Interesting one there, Stephen. Yeah, nice uh, to do a bit of um, science I, in your own backyard. If it's possible, and Susie's listening, their producer's listening, I wouldn't mind uh, getting Stephen's telephone number and having my chat. I think he sounds like a very interesting gardener. Okay, so Susie, if you were listening, can you grab the details from Stephen there? And um, I think that John might give you a call there, Stephen. Um, Chico is listening in Bali right now. <laughs> Hi, Chico. Hope you're enjoying yourself. Uh, Libby is in Blackwood. Uh, you found some old bulbs, Libby. Yes. Um, hi, John. Um, I had a, was having a clean out in the shed the other day uh, in an old cupboard, and I found a um, a, plast- a paper bag full of bulbs, and <laughs> they've all they've all sprouted. Um, do you know what? Sprouted. Do you know what kind of and bulbs they are? I think I'm pretty sure they're nerines because they're very big, yes. very big ones. Um, okay, after your last conversation with the soil temperatures, uh, it's obviously too cold to bury them in the ground. Oh no, bulbs. But, but uh, is it worth? But is it worth burying them? Sure. Is it well, worth yeah, if you if you want to save them. Um, bulbs are different to a lot of other plants that they are are cold tolerant and so if you put them in the ground they will grow Um, so if you've got good well-drained soil um, then and full sunny spot I would put uh, and just put them very very close together they're not going to flower very much of of any consequence they might have tiny little flowers but what will happen is the bulb will take in nutrition and so long as it produces leaves the leaves will gather nutrients and store it in the bulb so that uh, that when you come to grow them next year with a little bit of luck you might have enough nutrient in the bulb to give you flowers next year and if you wanted to really persist uh, if you did a, a third year you'd be back in business but uh, you won't get too much in the way of color this year so there you go libby thank you and uh, i think our last call this morning will be from annie in sefton park good morning annie Oh, good morning. Um, look, I'm wanting to plant out my footpath and um, I note that the council sprays um, every now and then for weeds and I need to know how long before I can plant out. I mean, I need to prepare the soil as well, obviously, but um, how long? I'm pretty sure it's pre-emergent spray that they use. Um, so how long should I wait until I plant out, please? I think it would be important that you ask the council what we decide they're using. Um, if it's a pre-emergence, it's probably Amatrol or something like that that will stop, uh, and that will you know, stop all kind of uh, weeds and, and plants from growing, uh, uh, whereas most of the councils just b- uh, use a, a knockdown spray and... and uh, if they get the timing right, that sort of cleans up the problem for this year. So ring the council, ask that that uh, you're not complaining that they're doing it, but <laughs> they're super sensitive yeah. at that. But uh, just <clears throat> find out what chemical they used and is was it a pre-emergence or a knockdown? And if it's a knockdown, you're in business. If it's a pre-emergence um, and it's long-lasting, ask them if it's pre-emergence, ask how long will it last in the soil? and they will give you the answers you're looking for. That's great. Thank you. Thanks very much, Annie, and thank you to our um, suggestions. There are lots of issues around soil and temperature 
Ali's saying Tim Marshall could have discussed it. Well, he could, but we didn't have the question in at that time, Ali, so we didn't have a chance to put it to him. And Nicola in Queensland says, we listen to John every week. Love the show and John's soothing voice. So there you go, John, all around the nation. uh, I love talking gardening and uh, I think it's good fun. I'm certainly looking forward to next week when we're at the show talking to lots of people and we've got uh, an opportunity. Come and say g'day uh, to both of us and uh, we'll say... uh, Well, I'll say until next week when we do get to the show, good gardening.